Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. Who are we without him? Would you just open our ears to hear what you would have to say? God, remove every ounce of hesitancy, every trepidation, God. I just hear you saying, Lord, that you're going to rejoin places that have been broken off. Rejoin us to you. No separation. No separation. No separation. In Jesus' name. Put your hand on the shoulder of someone next to you. Let's just intercede for one another before we get started. Lord, we just ask that you would come. We bind every hindrance, God. We bind every spirit of fear. God, we quiet confusion in Jesus' name. Anything that would exalt itself over the name of God, we cast low in Jesus' name. We lift you up, God. We lift you up, Jesus. We lift you up, God. We thank you. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can be seated. God is so good, amen? You know, Good Friday is traditionally a little more somber than Resurrection Sunday, but it's just kind of like when you know the end of the story, it's hard to try to like not act like you don't know the end of the story. You know what I'm saying? Um So excuse us if our celebration on Good Friday was premature, but there's a spoiler alert, Uh, he's risen from the dead, so like, we're really excited about that, and I told myself, I said, I'm going to really embrace the cross and be sad today, but then I started to look how Jesus embraced the cross, and he didn't embrace the cross with sadness. The Bible says that because of the joy set before him, 
that while Jesus was enduring the cross, there was a great joy that was in front of him. And so we've got to wonder, what would that joy be? Isaiah 53 tells us, it says that when he makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. So when he looked ahead through the corridors of time and he was on the cross, what kept him up there was your face and mine because he knew that we were going to come into the fold and respond to the gospel and be part of the family of God. Man, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is this? Oh, man, you know, the disciples get it wrong a lot, but, you know, sometimes they get it right. Remember when they're in the boat and, like, the waves are going, and then, like, Jesus stills the storm? And, you know, if I would have been a part of that, you know what I would have asked? I would have said, Jesus, how'd you do that? Oh, there's no real folk in here. Okay, I see. No, I get it. I get it. You guys got it all together. It's all right. It's all right. But the disciples, you know what they asked? What manner of man is this? That every miracle you experience is not to get you to replicate it, but it's to move you to the place where you exalt King Jesus above all. Better get with the program here. Or we're never going to get out of here. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Two things the cross does. Um, the Lord's been dealing with me personally. Um, and have you ever had the Lord tell you something and it really kind of like uh, shock you or whatever? But the Lord has like comes in every once in a while and says, Matt, quit trying to be good. I'm like, Ah, okay, (laughs) you know, because it's like we want to operate in this realm of being celebrated or being promoted or, or whatever. And if we're not careful, our efforts to be good can get us to miss the opportunity of the power of the gospel. And we might be getting applauded, but then Jesus might not get the glory due his name. And so the Lord has just been coming in and said, you know, because I was like, I'm just like ready, I'm excited. And he's like, Matt, quit trying to be good. (sighs) Okay. Because God's got this thing about working through broken things so that he might get the glory for it. And I got to thinking, you know, if a vessel isn't broken, the cracks won't show the glory that's shining through. If the vessel isn't broken, um... It won't leak out and we won't ask for more. We'll be full and then we'll go on and do our thing. But God purposely uses these earthen vessels, these broken things that we wouldn't ever want to celebrate so that his mighty name might be lifted up and he might just get all the praise and all the glory and all that is due his name. And like, like this is what God is doing. And so if you're broken in here, it might be better because more light might be shining through you actually. Because y'all know how it is. You know, certain people get saved, you're like, God saved them? 
God can save anybody. The last church I was at, they had a really strong recovery ministry, and this guy was in jail, and he was like, just kind of hit, hit rock bottom, and so this preacher came in, and he was actually, never, um, never belittle your witness, because it might not be about the person you're witnessing to, it's sometimes it's about the person in earshot that's listening in that you might never know about. And so uh, he was in earshot of this pastor that was sitting down with a guy, and, he, and the guy was telling him that, like, you know, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And he just remembered, man, I would love to have some rest right now. So he kind of made his little altar there, even though he wasn't even in on the conversation. When he got out of jail, the first thing he did, he'd come to the first church that he knew. When he looked over, he was up in the balcony, he looks over, he sees this other man that uh, he used to be in addiction with, that they had a feud and didn't like each other. And he looked over, and the glory of God was all over this man, and he was worshiping and stuff. And he looked over at him, and he goes... If God can save that crackhead, he can save me too. And he shot his hands up and he gave his life to the Lord right there. And he's still in that place right now. And so you just never know. Like, don't discredit your brokenness. Don't discredit the pain that you've went through because the greatest pain that you've ever experienced will generally be the place where God meets you. It's like, it's like that's why we're celebrating the cross. It's a crossroad. It's the existential crisis of men meeting the existential crisis of God. And it's this crisis meeting this other crisis where you go, why am I here? What is going going on why does nothing work out and then you look and there's a man being pegged to a cross and you go whoa wait there's a crisis greater than mine but God can take the cross that's what he does He's good at it. He's good at it. It's so cool. Like God plants this garden in Eden. I can't get into Easter right now. What's wrong with me? I just can't help it. It's too good. But God plants this garden in Eden. And if you plant a garden, how many of you know you got to have people to work the garden? So then God starts with this garden and then he's like, hmm. I'm going to need somebody to work this thing. So then he springs up springs from the earth. And how many of you know what dirt and water make? Oh, I ain't got no I didn't have any kids making mud pies when you grew up. So then he's like, all right, let's make some water. So he gets down and with red clay, <laughs> he begins to mold man it's like God's creative endeavors are like a child making mud pies he had a good time doing it <laughs> had a really good time doing it so when God formed man he breathed his breath into him it's beautiful that part of him breathing his breath into him was this the kind of the life and the image and the nature of God was going into the very being of Adam. That Adam was going to have a special calling in the world and that was going to be, he was going to bear the image of God. 
that God being spirit wanted his glory and his love and his relationship and his greatness and his grace and his justice and everything else. He had to have that manifested in the earth. And so he chose us to have that thing be manifest. So part of the breath of God and the image of God is this relational component where God would walk with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam had eyes to see God. He had ears to hear God. And they would walk in the garden and he would begin to learn through relationship what it was to rule the way God ruled. It was like if you wanted to see what God was like, you didn't need to look any further than Adam. That he was bearing the image of God. That there was a conversational breath component that God had breathed in him. That they would be breathing in each other and be having conversation. And through that relationship, they would begin to learn one another. Then another voice gets interjected. And a serpent comes in. That's really excellent, right? Because up to this point, there was only one person talking. It was God. (laughs) And then it was God's conversation to Adam and then Adam's conversation. But the serpent began to start talking. And when Adam began to listen to what the serpent said, suddenly the God that said, let there be light, let there be this, let there be this. And then when it came to man, you know what he said? Let us. That this conversation is between the plurality of the triune God and this is going to be our idea. But then this other being starts talking the serpent and when Adam begins to listen to that serpent suddenly when he hears the serpent and then they buy in and believe suddenly God's image gets covered up with the image of the serpent and as God's image is covered up by the serpent's image by believing a lie Suddenly, they're no longer reflecting the image of God, but they're reflecting the image of the serpent. And they begin to move out of the conversation with God and they begin to continue the conversation with the serpent. And sometimes that conversation with the serpent happens on the inside. The loudest lie you'll ever hear is your inner thoughts. (laughs) It was an Adamic echo. It was the echo of a fallen man who had a father, but chose to buy into the lies of a serpent who had never created or fathered anything. So Adam moved from a son to an orphan by believing one lie. And I want to tell you something. Every time you believe a lie, you move farther and farther from your son or daughtership. And God is trying to move you into a place to quit believing the lie. Because is a lie true? 
then how come it's so powerful? Because it's our belief that empowers the thing and then propels us into our future. So what would happen if you stopped believing the lie and you started believing the truth of God and what He says about you and what He wants to do in your life? What would happen? So the lie starts to get perpetuated. I think I said that right. I don't know. I'm not good at arithmetic, but the... The lie starts getting carried further and further. That as Adam begins to lie, he begins to believe the lie, he begins to perpetuate the lie. So suddenly our words that were meant to be conversation pieces with God and each other for building the garden, now suddenly they become the place where we begin to have forked tongues like the serpent and begin wounding one another. So suddenly, the image of God gets covered up by a lie. But then, another lie comes. And another lie comes. And another lie comes. And somebody says this. And somebody runs out on us. Or somebody does that. Or somebody forsakes it. And lies and lies and lies. And suddenly, it starts to build such a shell over our heart. We forget what's underneath the lie. We forget the treasure and the image in which we were made in because the layers of lies have gotten so thick that suddenly we believe the lie and say, well, this is just who I am. And this is what happens to Adam. And let's be frank, this is what happened to us. Is that we believe the lies. Whether it was the enemy head on or whether it was the enemy in someone else. And suddenly we can't tell if there's even treasure in us anymore. Is the image even there? And then we create doctrines to tell people how bad they are and think that's going to lead them to the Lord. Is that okay? I don't care. I'm saying it anyway. It's just what it is. But this is, this is our destiny. So God, in all of our lives, and all of our shame, and all of our mistakes... You know what he can see? He's got that x-ray vision. He can still see the treasure down on the inside of us. <laughs> and so he looked down in and saw between the layers of filth and dirt and grime and sin and shame. And he says, I still see the treasure in there. So Jesus does the impossible. The unthinkable, the scandal, and he covers himself in the lie. Yeah. <laughs> he acquaints himself with the dirt and the ooze and the mud and the grime and the mess. And he acquaints himself with it and he puts himself in it. Have you ever seen a snake shed its skin? What's underneath? Still a snake. Right? 
But God takes on the skin of the serpent. And then while He's on the cross, being stripped, being squeezed, being shamed, when He's skinned, underneath we see the heart of God. We see the treasure of God. We see not just Jesus, but where He's taking humanity in the grand scheme of the end of all. We see Jesus skinned and then we see God in the flesh. Jesus is being squeezed, skinned. That He's identifying with the false self that we've believed who we were. Say, man, I need more scripture for that. Okay, fine. <laughs> Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the flesh, weakened by sin, could not do by becoming sin in the flesh. That God takes on the likeness of sin and sinful flesh to be the representative, to die the death that you were supposed to die, but yet put himself in that place so that you could disassociate with the false self that loves sin, that loves the shame, that loves the lies. And that as Jesus was ripped apart on the cross, that your false ego and your false self would be ripped as well so that the treasure of God Begin to shine through. Jesus was ripped to let the Holy Spirit out. You're ripped so that the Holy Spirit can go in. That's how we find Him. That's how we find Him. Nobody just said, man, my life's going so great, I just asked you to add Jesus to the mix. Nobody did that. You know what you did. Oh, God, I have no hope. Is there, is there even a God? And then you look up, and there's a man on a cross. Oh, wait a second. My crisis led me to the greatest crisis. God being murdered. By humanity on the cross. And our crisis gets us to look at the greatest crisis. Where we might bow a knee. And become his. That when the lie gets so thick. We can't even tell what the original image that we're supposed to be in even looks like. That's why when Jesus starts showing up as the image of God. What do we do to him? We kill him. Why? I don't like how that looks. There's not enough lies in there to make me feel good about myself. When he's trying to undo the line to bring us into the truth of who we actually are. So that's what the cross does. The cross undoes the lie. It shows us that God really does love you and there's no place He's not willing to go to come find you. And it also shows us that 
I should have been the one up there on that cross. That Jesus' death on the cross begins to inform us of our real identity. Of who we actually are. That Jesus wants you to be acquainted with who you actually are. There was a show that I, I grew up watching. I can't remember what it was called, but I was like really into like adventure shows. You know what I'm talking about? Indiana Jones or something like that. It was like that. Oh, I got more shouts for Indiana Jones than I did <laughs> Jesus. Come on now. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But there was this movie I grew up, I can't remember. It was like from the 80s. And they were trying to... No, just stop. I'm going to just tell the story. Just stop. It's going to get worse if we keep doing this, okay? Because somebody's going to say a movie and somebody say, too saved is going to be like, I can't believe they watched that. All right, so just, just leave the anonymity. It's for your protection. Just leave the anonymity. Okay. So they were on this treasure hunt. And it's like this journalist and this like survivor guy in the jungle. And... They meet up at first, and y'all know how these things go. At first, they hate each other. But then as more trials and tribulations come, they start, you know, like, he rescues her, and she's, like, in his arms. And then they, like, look at each other, like, oh, and then they get weird, and, oh, can't, can't go there. We hate each other. That's right. And it was like this thing. But they were after this, like, jewel. They were after this treasure. And as they're going on all these adventures for this treasure... They're wrestling, I can't remember where, but they were wrestling, it was near a body of water, they're wrestling for this, for this beautiful gem. And as they're wrestling for it, the enemy guy that's like trying to evade them and try to find it before they do, he gets it and he's like, ah, yeah, ha ha, and he's laughing. But then a crocodile comes up. And, sorry kids, a, a crocodile just came up, okay? Let's just leave it at that. But if you can kind of, you know, oh, oh it's gone. Okay, it's, the jewel's gone. Okay. You guys can picture that with me. And as the jewel is gone, the guy, the, the survivor, the, the, the guy that was like going for it, trying to find it, Hillman as, the, Hillman as the love interest had bonded, they begin to talk about, he was like, man, like, what do you want? Oh, this is what I would love to do. Oh, man, I just want to be on a sailboat and like be in the ocean and, and, and just that's like, that's like my dream. And, and the, so they're going back and forth sharing their dreams. And so in this moment, this jewel is gone and there's the, there's the crocodile. And the guy is like so, he knows like that jewel is the ticket to his dream. That jewel is the ticket for everything that he's ever wanted in his life. And he dives, he, he's like, like swashbuckler, like grabs the knife like this, you know, like in the teeth. And then he dives in after the crocodile. And it's like, bloop. And then you see a few bubbles, bloop, 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 bloop. And then you don't see anything. And you're like, and the, the woman's leaned over like, ah. Oh. And then it cuts back and she's back in New York at her newspaper journalist job or whatever and she's just walking down the street and she's kind of sad. Got a bag of groceries. And all of a sudden, the music starts to change. 
And here comes this fool coming down Main Street, New York on this giant sailboat. And she looks up, drops the bag of groceries. And it's like, oh my goodness. And he goes over. And as he's watching, as she comes and greets him, she goes, oh my goodness. What happened to that crocodile? And he puts his foot up on the deck of the boat. Now, those are alligator. They're not quite crocodile. But he puts his deck, he puts his boot up there and goes, he got a bad case of indigestion. I didn't mean to get so spiritual on y'all. But I don't know why I was hit from that movie from the 80s. But I just pictured Jesus seeing the treasure going in the belly of a beast. And Jesus went on and dove into the unknown, into Sheol, into the depths of hell. And he went right into the belly of the beast. Why? Because there was a treasure in there that he had to recover because his dream. Say, I need some scripture for that. Okay, fine. Matthew 13, verse 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. But when he found a pearl of great value, he went out and sold everything he had and bought it. That God bankrupt heaven <laughs> to buy you. And you're still tripping about that divorce from 20 years ago. You're still fooling with drugs and alcohol. And you got a God like that? <sighs> that Jesus, like the greater Jonah... <laughs> dives into he's not thrown over he dives into the fish but instead of being vomited back out Jesus makes a fish fry come on Jesus calls up Bubba's and says come on cross not only changes our identity but it changes our perspective because when we think God is losing in our lives he's actually winning <laughs> and the disciples find out this the hard way Mark chapter 10 verse 35 and through 45 this is this kind of exchange and it says then James and John the sons of Zebedee came to him and said teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask Okay. <laughs> and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? That's, 
Not what I was expecting, but okay. They said to him, permit one of us to sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Remember that, right, left, okay? Think about it. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I experience? They said to him, we're able. That's when you answer, Lord, you alone know. <laughs> like that would be the better response. But I appreciate their zeal. Then Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I experience. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. So remember, when he comes into his kingdom, someone on his right, someone on his left, and he's unaware of who's going to be on his right or left when he comes into his kingdom. It is for those to whom it has been prepared. Now when the other ten heard this, they became angry with James and John. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions use their authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So remember the imagery. Jesus on his throne. Someone on his left. Someone on his right. He don't know who they're going to be. But forever it's prepared. Now check this out in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 31 and 30 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world... Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now watch this, verse 33. Now he said this to indicate clearly what kind of death he was going to die. See, the cross was actually a throne. It was the place where Jesus was going to come into his kingdom. And the disciples could see it. And many times we can't see it. Like we think we're going to come into the kingdom high-stepping a lot of times. But the only thing that God says to take with us is a cross. It's the only thing he says. He's like, oh, you want to follow me? Oh, take your cross and follow me. And then, then we'll go. And some of us have tried to follow God without the cross. And it's the reason why we've never experienced resurrection life. It's like we're following him from a distance because we're part of the crowd and we're like enjoying the cool things that are going on. But the invitation stays the same. Like God is still trying to call you to this deeper place, to the place of death. Why? So that you can just be dead? No, because that's the place where life begins to start to emerge. 
It's why Jesus begins to take away the frightful fears that all of us have. Like, there's a storm going on, and what's Jesus doing? He's like, you know, and they're like, oh, it's a ghost. No, that's God. It's like he's on the cross, and they're like, all's lost. And Jesus is like, I'm on the throne. They throw him in a hole, and oh, it's over. And he pops out, and they're so aloof, he has to like walk. He doesn't even use the door. He just has to, he walks through the, hello. Ah! <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, I'm God. It's like, I'm. It's like he's using death language and he's like, oh, death, you're afraid of that? Oh, guys. Unless a seed of ground, unless a seed of corn falls into the ground and dies, it just stays there. But if it dies, it comes up. And you know, there's something about corn. Every kernel looks exactly the same. Unless you get that Indian corn. It's a little bit variation, but that's okay. It's all the same. It's the same. That might be the better picture. He's like, no, God's not. He's just planting a garden. Why do you think the first century church just were so available to be tortured and murdered. They were like, oh, I'm part of God's garden. Cool. It's like the thing we're most afraid of, God laughs at. That God's moving us from our fears to get us to trust that it feels and looks like a cross. But that's only because it needs to die. (laughs) What's really happening is God is preparing you for a throne. He's getting you ready to rule, to reign with Him. So we see a cross, God sees a throne. That's why He wasn't afraid. And it's the oddest thing, right? Because everybody's trying to get Him off of it. The devil is like, hey, eat this bread. Turn these stones to bread. Or here, just worship me. And He's like, no, dude. I'm going to the cross. Peter pulls him aside. Quit telling everybody you're going to be crucified. He's like, no. Um, It's part of my throne journey here, guy. It's like the place we're avoiding the most is probably the place that would become the access point to our destiny. That would actually, if you want to know where your destiny is, look at the greatest fear that you have because that's where the treasure is. That's where the treasure will be. And God's waiting on you to find Him valuable enough to face your greatest fear so that He could bring you into your destiny. Like that's what He's up to do. So we see cross. He sees the throne.
in Psalm 23, it's like, it's probably the most well-known set of scriptures. Like, like everybody knows Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. Makes me a lot angry. And it starts out with this like motif of like what it's like to be a sheep being led by God as a shepherd. But if you know anything about sheep, um, sheep don't get to sit at the table. Sheep are what's for dinner on the table. (laughs) But this transition happens so oddly within this psalm. Where like in verse 4, it starts talking about when I must walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff reassure me. Then watch in verse 5, it just completely shifts. You prepare a feast before me in the plain sight of my enemies. You refresh my head with oil and my cup is completely full. It ends with the fact that David says that he never has to leave the house of the Lord ever again. So it starts as this sheep, then all of a sudden the sheep is sitting at a table eating at the king's table And while he's eating at the king's table, there's suddenly anointing going on. So we have this like king aspect. And then there was only one people that never had to leave the house of the Lord, and that was the priests. So it looks like you're becoming a sheep led to the slaughter. But if you'll keep following Jesus, you're actually moving into a place to be at the king's table, at his feast. And you're moving into the role of a priest to fulfill the mission that God had originally with Adam, that it would be a people that would be kings and priests and would steward the Garden of Eden in a relationship with God that would pull in the entire world into the redemption of God. So we see a cross. God sees a throne. We see a cross... God sees a meeting point to have a meal with his family. Is that when Jesus was celebrating Passover? Don't worry, I'm going to give you some hope. I'm landing the plane. When Jesus was getting ready to celebrate Passover, you know what he did? He broke the bread, poured out the wine. And he said, This is my body. And this is my blood. That he's making a table in the presence of his enemy. What did his body represent? What did his blood represent? But guess what? He didn't see a cross. He saw a table with his family. And he says, do this in of me. So we kind of get stuck in our language sometimes of remember, right? We just think, hey, just when you think about it, but I want you to see it different. Do this in remembering me. In other words, 
The place of the cross is where God remembers or rejoins us back to his body. And some of you have been dismembered and you've been feeling cut off. And here's what God's ready to say to you. He's saying, would you remember and join yourself back to me? So think about the thief on the cross. What does he say to Jesus? Hey, when you go into your kingdom, when you go into your kingdom, can you fit me back in there? She says, oh, today. Come on, look at your neighbor. Say today. Today, yeah. preached out y'all are terrible think about it one man stripped of everything looking at another man stripped of everything and saying don't you remember me and that's why you experienced what you experienced because God was trying to remember you back into him where you belong that there was something in the way and only that trial could reveal what God was trying to get to the heart of. So we see a cross. Y'all know Jesus. What was Jesus' profession? So that meant he was a builder, huh? I wonder if when he was building a cross, he might have had a different vision for things. Hmm. That's odd. See, we see a cross, but God sees a table. God sees a table. And it's not just any table, it's the king's throne. So it's the king's table. Jesse, we did it. We did it. <laughs> Y'all don't know. We made it happen. Both Jesse's, we did it. We were praying to God that arm would not flap and hit me in the head. So praise the Lord. The anointing kept that arm down right, right when we to. But God set the table. And... There's only one prerequisite. Who'll come when he starts sounding the dinner bell? Who'll come? Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, the same shall be saved. There's a dinner call going out. And he doesn't want you in outer darkness watching the wedding ceremony take place. And while we're eating them sweet and sour meatballs and those little smokies with barbecue sauce at every wedding you've ever been to in your life, some of you is going to be on the outside in outer darkness and you know what you're going to be doing? Weeping and gnashing your teeth. Saying, why didn't I go? Why didn't I go? It's too prideful. Too arrogant. 
to serve a king that skinned himself, shamed himself in front of everyone for me. In eternity, we're going to, when we lay eyes on the king, Come on. Hey, I like it. Let's go. Hey, let's go, buddy. Come on. <laughs> oh, man. God's showing us things. He's, let, he's teaching us with kids how to come in. He's teaching us with children how to come in. <laughs> Whoa, I hear some crazy noises. That means I need to wrap it up here. God, you're so awesome. So Lord, as we get ready to sit down at the supper table with the king, if there be anyone here that say, oh, I don't know him, but I want to. Scripture says, just call on his name. You don't need a formula or a sinner's prayer. You just need to get honest with him. Say, Jesus, your Lord. <laughs> I bow a knee to the king. And then he reveals to you that the king is not just your king, he's your dad. <laughs> And then he reveals to you, you're actually a joint heir in all this. <laughs> then he reveals to you, you have a destiny and a purpose that he wants to walk out and discover with you. Whew, thank you, Lord. God, let it be. Let it be. If our ushers would go ahead and come. Keep this worshipful atmosphere. God, remember us. <laughs> remember everything that's been broken. The shalom of God. Nothing broken, nothing out of place. <laughs> Perfectly fitted to His body. bride in the crown. You're not too far. You're not too far. In Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in Him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.